Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de la Matroc, and Ina Coriel. Those are all pin names. We've been reading Gabrielle's The Journey, which is a young writer's story, and if you're just tuning in now for the first time ever, well, you probably should go to a different episode, because we're on chapter 11 of this story. This is the 80th episode, season 5, episode 11. If you want to go back to the beginning of the story, you would go back to episode 70, season 5, episode 1. And that will let you hear the journey, chapter or prologue, and chapter 1. And then you could re, uh, listen further. If it is, in fact, your first time visiting, I like to talk about writing, but it's not always easy to come up with a topic. And I also built this podcast to read my fan fiction. So... I've got 80 episodes worth of fan fiction out here and some by other people. I was able to talk to someone else four times, um, which um, I can't hear them very well, but I think they, they made interesting episodes. If I could do that again, I would love to. And uh, on their episodes, they uh, read something or had me read something for them. But uh, we have been reading The Journey and we are ready for chapter 11, so I would like to get into it. The Young Riders, The Journey, a novel by Gabrielle Lawson, Chapter 11. It had not been a pleasant night. Teaspoon had dreamed of the shed, of Buck being chained to the wall like in old stories of castles and dungeons. Some shadowy man with no face tortured him, beating him until his limbs were broken, burning him with a glowing red iron. Buck screamed over and over, and Teaspoon found himself standing at the other side of the room, standing and doing nothing to stop the shadowy man, nothing to help Buck. Buck cried and pleaded with him, but he couldn't move forward, couldn't even shout at the man to stop. And finally the screaming stopped. Buck hung limply from the chains. Teaspoon hoped he was unconscious, lost to the pain the man had inflicted. The shadowy man grabbed a fistful of hair and lifted Buck's head. Buck's eyes were open and glassy. Blood spilled from his mouth onto his chest. His chest did not rise or fall. Buck was dead. The man laughed and turned his face so that Teaspoon could see who it was that had done this to Buck. And then Teaspoon screamed. It was his own face. Teaspoon jerked awake and sat up quickly, surprising Jenny. She turned toward him, but a remnant of his nightmare had stayed with him, and he feared that Buck had died. Ignoring the pain in his eyes from the bright morning light pouring in through the window, Teaspoon stood and reached for Buck's chest. With his hand there to feel it, he could feel, he could see the slight lift of the blankets as Buck inhaled. Satisfied and much relieved, he sat down where he was, right beside Jenny on the floor. She touched his arm. He's quiet, she said. He hasn't changed. I would have woke you. Teaspoon leaned against the other bed and let out a shaky breath. I know, he said. I just dreamed. He didn't want to tell her what he'd dreamed. He didn't want to remember. Even now the details were fading, vanishing as most dreams do. Only that face remained clear and the sound of Buck's screams. Satisfied that Buck had survived the night, Teaspoon looked closely at him. He still looked terrible. He was bruised and swollen, but at least he was clean and bandaged. His breaths were short and shallow, but they were steady. He never moved, Jenny said beside him. His eyes didn't move like he was dreaming. His fingers never twitched. He never moved at all, not even when I changed the bandage on his arm. Ike was like that once, 
Teaspoon told her, holding on to the hope that Buck would wake as Ike had. He was shot and fell and hit his head on a rock. He didn't wake up for a few days. Teaspoon heard rustling in the other room, and soon the kid stepped out with his boots in his hand. What time is it? he asked. About nine, I think, Jenny answered. Then she turned back to Teaspoon. I didn't want to wake you. She lowered her voice to a whisper, though maybe I should have, considering your dream. Loud enough for the kid and Jimmy who joined them, she said. I put some coffee on. Would you like some teaspoon? She stood and walked to the stove before Teaspoon could answer. Very kind of you, he said in response. He used the bed beside him to lift himself off the floor. Kid and Jimmy took a cup each and then just stood watching Teaspoon, and he knew what they were waiting for. You boys get the buckboard ready. Bring it up close to the house. He leaned over and softly touched Buck's face. It's time to go home, son. Buck and Ike stood at the edge of the school's land. It had not been easy for either of them there. Why here, Ike? Buck asked. While this school had been his introduction to the white world, it had not been an easy time. I don't decide, Ike said. I just know where we're going. Ike sighed. I, Ike also knew when it was time to leave, and Buck wondered about that. Was it because his body back in the physical world was dying, his life running out like sand in an hourglass? He found himself a little worried about that, where before he almost felt relief. Why should it matter? If he died, he could be with Ike. He could see his mother. He wouldn't be hated anymore. He wouldn't have to scrape for the least bit of anyone's respect. He wouldn't hurt anymore. But his brother's words had reached him. He never could discount anything, Red Bear said, even when they disagreed. Such respect he had for his brother. Red Bear had said there were still joys to live for. He said that while faced with the slow annihilation of his people, how could he still see the joys when so much sorrow was awaiting him? Buck just couldn't see it. And staring at the school in front of him wasn't helping. He'd had hope when he left the Kiowa. He was also fearful and sad about leaving his brother, but he had hoped that it could be better with the whites. This school was supposed to be his doorway. He was supposed to learn here, to read, to write, to speak the white man's words. He had learned those things, but he'd also learned he wasn't white, no matter what the other older Kiowa children had said. His skin was too dark, his way of life so very different, and while white children were just as cruel as Kiowa ch children were, here he had no brother to protect him. Here he had felt truly alone, truly vulnerable, truly afraid for his life. I suppose we have to go in, he said, his voice completely lacking in enthusiasm at the prospect. I wonder if Mother Augustine is still in charge. Ike chuckled, oblivious to Buck's dour remembrances or ignoring them altogether. She must be. Just look at the garden. Buck did and saw the perfectly parallel rows of browning stalks. It was late enough in the year that the vegetables had already been harvested, but their stalks remained a testimony to Mother Augustine's legendary rigidity. Buck sighed again and stepped through the gate into the dusty schoolyard. As soon as the little gate swung closed behind him, he knew he was alone. He could not see Ike on either side of him. Ike? he called. He turned back quickly, not caring what he'd see so long as he saw his friend, but he did not. He saw a pouring rain under a blackened sky. He heard thunder and felt the earth shudder when the lightning struck. He saw a boy, tall, but much too thin, wearing buckskins a little too big, and hugging his arms around himself as he slogged through the tall grass and mud. Lightning flashed again, and he saw the boy's face as he saw the barn. He knew what the boy was thinking. 
because he knew he was that boy. He thought for a moment that maybe he should try and warn the boy away, but he felt no rain on his own shoulders, no chill from the wind. They were in two different worlds, looking at each other through a veil of years and experiences. Buck could see the boy, but the boy did not see him. Buck watched his younger self enter the schoolyard and pull open the barn door. He faced away from the fence then, and the darkness faded. The rain stopped and the clouds cleared. It was morning again, and still Ike was not there. He turned, and looking up at the three-story school, he felt little different than the boy he had just seen enter the barn, alone and lost in a world he didn't understand, and afraid. The boy would be afraid for his life, but Buck now was afraid of his memories. Entering the school was just sure to dredge up old hurts, just as standing in the yard was already doing. But Ike was gone, and Buck guessed he'd stay gone until it was time to leave the school. Not for the first time, he thought it would have been easier if he'd simply died. Did everyone get the kind of choice he was facing? Had Ike chosen to die, leaving Emily and Buck and all the writers? Had his mother chosen death over staying with her sons? Had Noah chosen to give up on life just when it seemed the country would tear itself apart over the question of his people's place in it? It didn't seem right. Ike loved Emily, and he had apologized to Buck for leaving him. His mother wouldn't have left him alone so young. Noah had wanted to see his people free. Why would they give up then? Is that what he was really choosing, to give up or to keep going? Dying had seemed easy when it was only ending his suffering. But it was also giving up, and his pride wrestled with that. He hadn't given up at this school, no matter how many times the older boys beat him, no matter how many times his teacher snapped the ruler on his knuckles or embarrassed him at the front of the class. He could have slipped out at night and run back to the plains and the Kiowa any night in the three years he had stayed, but he hadn't. Now the spirits had brought him back to the school. It was late morning, judging from the position of the sun. The students would be in their classes, which was good since Buck didn't want to disturb them. He wasn't even sure at this point if he could disturb them. Red Bear had seen him at the village, but the dog soldiers had not. It was probably better not to risk it. Taking a deep breath, he climbed the few steps to the porch and reached the door. He wasn't sure how to enter. Would the handle work? If he opened the door, would anyone see it, even if they didn't see him? Before he had time to decide, the door opened itself, or rather a nun opened it. She stood in the doorway, peeling out from her black habit as if looking for someone, Mother Augustine. Her face was a bit more lined than he remembered, but otherwise she had not changed at all. She stood ramrod straight and had a stern, serious expression on her face. He tried to remember if he'd ever seen her smile. She shook her head and stepped back to close the door. She hadn't seen him, and for that Buck was grateful. He hurried through the door before it closed and watched as the school's reverend mother went back upstairs to her class. The children and most of the nuns would be upstairs on the second floor, so Buck decided to wander around the first floor until the spirits decided he'd been there long enough. He was, wasn't sure why he had come, so he wasn't sure what he was supposed to find. He went first to the office, the first room he'd ever seen at the school. After being found in the barn, he'd been brought by two nuns into the office to face Mother Augustine, though, of course, back then he hadn't known her name or even that they were nuns. The office had changed little over the years, except maybe to look a bit more worn. Sparsely furnished, it held only a desk, a chair, and a crucifix. The desk was large and its top empty with the exception of a Bible. 
The straight-backed chair's upholstery was fraying on the arms, and its wine-colored fabric had been dulled by age and sunlight. The silver crucifix did not look aged at all, but then he knew from his time here that it was regularly polished. It wasn't until after he'd learned to read that he understood the significance of the sculpted man pinned to crossbeams. The nuns revered it for the sacrifice made by Jesus, but to Buck it had little religious meaning. It had, however, given him his name— because Reverend Mother Mary Augustine could not have a student named Running Buck. She'd searched for a Christian name for him, finally deciding on cross when she had touched the crucifix she wore around her neck. It had been He had been terrified that day. The nuns who had brought him in had taken his knife from him, and Mother Augustine took his medicine pouch and earring. He had understood enough to know that he had traded them for school. He'd left the Kiowa to seek out a school like Little Bird had described, and hearing that word spoken by these nuns, he'd wanted to learn. He could only understand a few English words, and the nuns made no attempt to help him understand. So when they took his things and cut his hair, he thought it was a high price to pay, perhaps too high, but he'd gone too far to turn back. Of course, he got everything back after graduating, but he didn't have any way of knowing that when he arrived, and he wasn't about to quit." Bolstered by that resolve, he had endured the strict discipline and foreign culture and tried to learn. But the white world had obstacles he hadn't prepared for. The Kiowa had seen him as white, but at the school it was very obvious that he was not. He was a savage and a heathen, an Indian, and here he had no brother to protect him. Buck turned to leave the office and found the rules were no different in the school than out on the plains. Directly before him were two nuns and the frightened youth he had once been. Hungry and covered in grit and dirt from the storm the night before, the younger Buck looked about the room with wide eyes while the women in black discussed his intentions. Buck hadn't understood their words then, but they were perfectly clear to him now. He was carrying this, Reverend Mother, the one on the right, Sister Beatrice said. She held his knife between two fingers as if it might jump and slit her throat. I shuddered to think what he is capable of. Mother Augustine stepped through Buck to walk around his younger self. She... Then she took the knife and held it close before setting it on the desk. It is very possible that that knife is used for hunting, she said, and then dismissed the nun on the left, Sister Margaret. Sister Beatrice went on to tell how Michael Shaughnessy had found him in the barn, supposing that he had broken in. Mother Augustine remained calm in the face of Sister Beatrice's near panic and explained that he could not have broken in since the barn was left unlocked. And when the younger nun asked why he wasn't in his own place with his people, Mother Augustine surprised him further. I doubt that he has a place, she said. Otherwise, he would have not been in our barn. He is not full-blooded. Look at the color of his hair, brown, not black. I have heard that some tribes do not take well to mixed blood. He has probably been expelled or abandoned by his people. Judging by the looks of him, he is fortunate to have found us. To a stranger, she might simply have sounded logical, and to the younger Buck, it was just indecipherable chatter. But to the older Buck watching, the whole conversation was a wonder. This short, stern woman had been the bane of his existence at Sorrows. She had punished him when the other boys picked fights. She had slapped him with the ruler when he used the wrong hand, even though it was much harder to, for him to write or eat with his right. She had stood him in front of the class of a much younger children and embarrassed him when he couldn't pronounce the words with his reader in his reader correctly. Even when he grew taller than her, she still intimidated him. Never once had she given him a kind word of encouragement. He had hated her. But here she was, in this scene from his past, and she did not think him a savage out to scalp them all in the night. 
When Sister Beatrice succumbed to all the usual lies and suspicions white men had about Indians, Mother Augustine confronted her with reason and fairness. It was a side of the woman he had never seen before, and he wondered how different those three years might have been if he had understood her words that first day. Jenny grabbed the ball of yarn again before she went outside. They had decided to move the whole bed to the porch so they wouldn't have to jar Buck around any more than necessary. The buckboard was as close to the porch as the kid and Jimmy could get it. In the back, they had placed the mattress from the second bed, several extra blankets and a heavy quilt. One horse was hitched to it, and three others were tethered to the post nearby. Teaspoon had come out to inspect it, but then walked off to the shed where Buck had been kept. Jenny took, uh, looked to Kid, but he shrugged back. When Teaspoon returned, he was carrying a hammer and a nail. He climbed into the back of the buckboard and began to hammer the nail into the back of the seat. You won't need the string, he told her when he finished. You can hang it here. You'll ride back here with him. I'll be up front. Kid and Jimmy, I need one of you to ride ahead of us and have Rachel and Lou prepare a place in the house and bring the doctor over. I'll go, Kid said. I'm sure Lou is clawing at the walls to get back out here. This'll save her the trouble. Teaspoon nodded and got down from the buckboard. Okay, let's get him out here. They all filed back into the house and found Buck lying as still and peaceful as he had the entire night. Jenny just hoped he wouldn't awake when they wouldn't wake when they moved him. As much as she wanted to see his eyes and hear his voice, she wanted more for him to rest without pain. While they could not take away his pain, this death-like sleep he was in kept him beyond it. All she really knew of him was the week they'd spent together before her mother died, and the stories I could told. Looking back into her memories, she saw him with new eyes. He was there, leading the army into her village while the warriors were away. At the time, she had only noticed his actions in regards to her. He had led the soldiers. He tried to stop her from running away. But now the memories ran slower, clearer in her mind. He did lead the soldiers, but his eyes were troubled, unhappy. But she knew the soldiers hadn't forced him to come. Reluctant. That was what his eyes told her. And then when the shooting started, he had jumped down from his horse and raised his hands to the soldiers. He tried to stop them. He saw two ponies standing in the open and about to get trampled and pulled him to safety. He did try to stop her from running away, but she slapped him and he fell. She got to her horse only to be shot in the shoulder and dropped to the ground. And after the soldiers had rounded them up, he had tried to help her by tending her wound. She hadn't seen it then, but he had tried to help her even when he stopped her running away. If she had stayed, she would not have been shot. Either way, the soldiers would have taken her. He couldn't change that and neither could she. He had done his best, but he was just one man. The soldiers didn't listen to him, and she could see now the sadness that was in his eyes when it was all over. She ignored him back in Sweetwater because she was still angry. She took her forced first opportunity to run away, but he caught her. They argued. She hated him, and all the while he treated her with kindness and patience. She yelled at him, insulted him, and he held her when she cried. She had been worried when she rode out here with Ike. Would he love her? They'd only just begun to get along when he fought Black Wolf for her. Fought to the death. He had offered his life for her chance at freedom. Wasn't that love? Would she love him? Looking down at his bruised, swollen face, she knew now that she already did. Lift it easy, Teaspoon said, breaking into her thoughts. She and Kid had taken the foot of the bed, leaving Jimmy and Teaspoon to the heavier end. Between the four of them, the bed wasn't too hard to lift. Buck's weight had made it awkward, but they didn't have to go far. When they reached the door, Teaspoon stepped back so that Jimmy could get through the door with the bed. 
It was just wide enough, but not for both men. Jenny did the same with Kid, taking up the bed again only after they were out on the porch. They set the bed down near the, to the edge of the porch, and Jenny took a folded blanket from the foot of the bed. Teaspoon helped her, lifting Buck little by little until she had the fresh blanket underneath him. This time, only the men lifted Buck by the blanket. Jenny untied the dreamcatcher and jumped into the back of the buckboard to hang it on the nail Teaspoon had put there. Then she returned to the edge and helped to pull the blanket when the men reached her. Jimmy climbed up with her, and together they pulled Buck onto the mattress. Once he was settled, Jenny covered him with the blankets and tucked a pillow beneath his head. Through it all, Buck never so much as twitched. The school was full of memories. No matter where he went, he had to turn at some point, either to leave a room or to go into another one. Every time he turned, he faced the past. The other boys tormenting him in the cafeteria or tripping him on the stairs, getting beaten up and then punished for it, whether he fought back or not, standing in front of the class of little children trying to remember all the rules for pronouncing English spellings. While he had found encouragement in the office, he found it nowhere else in the school. What he did find, though, was a bit of his spirit. Young Buck was so angry at Mother Augustine's constant insistence on humiliating him that he was sure she wanted him to fail. He vowed to himself to learn to speak the language, to show her that he could, to beat her in that battle of minds. There was only one room left, so he went there, walking through another memory. It was rather mundane. Some boys knocked his books out of his younger self's arms and taunted him with names. He had seen enough of that. Sparing the boy who was him a sympathetic glance, he walked straight through the boys and into the infirmary. It wasn't much of an infirmary. The doctor's office in Rock Creek was much larger and more clinical looking, but this room did give the sick and or injured a bit of privacy not afforded to the students in the dormitories upstairs. Two small beds served the sick, while a chair and table gave Sister Frances a place to sleep while she watched over them. That was the memory now coming to him, and it was so familiar, so real, that it backed him up against the wall. Two boys occupied the beds, one dark-skinned with short hair and the other light-skinned with none. It wasn't until just then that he realized none of the other memories had included Ike. Ike was there all along, scaring the other children and even watching when Buck was beaten. But this was different. He felt himself melting into the memory in front of him, becoming the younger boy that he once was and reliving this moment, one of the most precious times of his life. Ike had come to Buck's aid after older boys in town had picked a fight. Both had ended up beaten badly and were brought to the infirmary to rest and convalesce. Sister Frances fell asleep at the table, and Buck stole curious glances at the silent boy beside him. He had seemed threatening before, maybe even crazy. Owlboy, Buck had named him in his own mind because his wide eyes and bare head reminded him of that animal. He didn't look like that now, though. Buck knew that the other boy had tried to help him, and he owed him something. But he was very curious as to why, when he had only watched before, he had decided to act in town. So Buck, in his broken English, asked the quiet boy why he had fought. In the other's silence, Buck had finally learned that the boy was silent, silent because he couldn't speak. Both sat up and met, really met, for the first time. When Buck asked the boy's name, Ike wrote it on a piece of paper. And then Buck offered Ike something very special. It was small to him, something every Kiowa learned, but for Ike, the Plains language of hand signs was the only form of communication he had beyond writing. Ike wrote a very special word on a piece of paper and handed it over to Buck. 
Buck read it and mispronounced it, but got it right at Ike's prompting. Friend, he said, and Ike's eyes lit up. Buck realized that Ike had offered him something of great value in return, something he'd longed for in this lonely place surrounded by so many children. Buck raised his outturned fist to his neck with his two first two fingers extended and then raised his hand upward toward his face. Ike followed the movement with his eyes and made the sign himself. Friend, Buck repeated. Once again, Buck found himself at the wall, watching as the two boys learned from each other. Ike would write a word and encourage Buck to pronounce it, and Buck would show him the sign. The scene faded like a mist, leaving two empty beds covered in colorful but faded quilts. The chair where Sister Frances had slept was empty. Buck turned and walked out the door only to be met with more memories, but this time Ike was in every one of them. The school day ended and children of both the present and the past ran outside to play. Buck went with them and found Ike against by, again by the fence. And a younger Ike, high in the cottonwood tree with his younger self, he heard himself as he passed the tree. He was laughing, and the older Buck could see Ike smiling, too. Ike was only one friend, one friend out of all the children in the school, but he was more than enough to make the school bearable, even pleasant at times. He reached the fence, and Ike smiled. It's time to go home. So this is the chapter that references someone else's story and actually lifts a lot of that backstory from her story. It is a wonderful story by Kim Roberts, and I put an author's note at the end. It reads thus thusly. Kim Roberts graciously gave me permission to use her Sorrows Children as the backstory for the events in my story taking place at the mission school. Canonically, Buck did tell Emily that he and Ike met at a mission school and that they had become friends after Ike jumped into a fight to help Buck. Everything else, events at the school and descriptions of the grounds are based on the past events from Kim's story. I paraphrased her scenes here, not wanting to plagiarize and not even hoping to write them as beautifully as she did. If what little I put, them, put here intrigues you, and even if it doesn't, go read her story. It's an excellent piece. You can find it at http colon two forward slashes hem dot p-a-s-s-a-g-e-n dot s-e slash n-e-s-c-i-r-i slash s-c underscore pro dot htm i know that's long and complicated but um it is worth it <laughs> Go find her story, maybe even, you know, see if you can Google it. Sorrow's Children by Kim Roberts. It is fabulous. It is just wonderful. You'll want tissues. It will make you cry. Um, I'm so glad she let me do that because that provided this beautiful, you know, story for this chapter. Because I could have him visit the school on his on his journey and this was an important part of an, in his life when he met Ike and I would have had to make up all that stuff myself but she built that image of in my head about the school she built the events into my head as if they were canon canon to me canonical it was just it's a fantastic story it absolutely is and I just loved it. And so being able to use it in this chapter to write those things, um, to re-look at the scene where Buck 
was brought in by the two nuns and one was afraid and she had the knife and to realize that Mary, Mother Augustine was actually being rational and not thinking he was going to slash all their throats. He, he, you know, as a young child in her story, he didn't understand all that. He thought he was making a transaction. They take these things and I get school. If you hear a big boom, well, it's 4th of July. So yeah, they're letting off fireworks even though it's illegal in my town. <sighs> it's not enforced. And there are many, 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 many uh, fireworks that have gone on that were not official, like, presentations. So, backyards and stuff. <sighs> yeah, a lot of it. It was like being in a war zone. Pop, 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 <laughs> But, um, kind of scared my kitties a little bit. But uh, they're safe inside the house. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you'll go... Um, listen or, or excuse me go read kim roberts's story sorrows children it is a really really good story this is what i like about fan fiction some people say you know write it off is just silly stuff not good writing it's just so people can ship to people usually two men who weren't gay in the show but it's not Yes, there are crap stories like that. There are a lot of crap stories like that. You have to dig through all of that. But when you do find a gem, it's literature. It is beautiful and wonderful. And it could have been a book. It, it's just... There are beautiful, wonderful stories out there in fan fiction. In whatever fandom you're interested in, you can find them. They are out there. And if you are a writer of them, I want you to write those. Any teenager hack can pop out one of those shipping stories. But only a writer, a real writer, can make a gem. Whether it's a romance story, or a murder mystery, or a horror story, or just a gen angst story, torture for torture's sake story, whichever it is, write it well. Make it be the one that sticks in somebody's memory and said, you know, they just maybe sparks them a story and they have to ask you for permission to use that story as their backstory. That would be amazing. I, I, I love this about fan fiction. It allows anybody without having to go through a publishing house to put their stories out there and if they've got really good ones, the readers notice. They notice and they'll read your story. Even if you just see the hit counts go up. But maybe you see kudos or favorites, or maybe you see comments or reviews, subs, subscriptions, or, or alerts in fanfiction.net. Um, those are people wanting to read more, wanting to, you know, to read your story. I got a really lovely review today um, on the story I'm writing, the, the Marvel um, Cinematic Universe Whip, and it's just... Yeah, I don't get paid for this in money, but 
but I get paid in those comments and the kudos and the faves. And it just makes me feel good. And it goes back to what I said when I did the magic episode. Writing is magic. It's telepathy. I had a story in my head. And I was able to write it down. And then you read it. And that story played in your head. The way it played in mine. And I just took my imagination and put it in your head. It's telepathy. And that is very cool. <laughs> well, I am wanting to keep these episodes uh, shorter, and that was a longer chapter. But we are definitely moving on toward the end of the story, because I did say it was time to go home. Now, I don't think we're just going to get there in Chapter 12, because it's a 14-chapter story. So we've got a f probably a few step stops to make along the way. And at this time, he's, you know, in the past, still kind of a young kid. Probably he goes, he and Ike go from here to the Pony Express. So it'll be interesting um, what's in Chapter 12. It's been a very long time since I've read it that I can't tell exactly, can't tell myself exactly what's in Chapter 12. So I am looking forward to reading it again. And I hope you are looking forward to hearing it. Please email me or tweet me. I would love to chat with you. Um, at Inhildi in Twitter, that's uh, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, Inhildi at gmail.com for email. Again, I love to talk about writing. If you have writing questions, please email me. Maybe it'll become a topic for an episode because uh, I do still want to talk about writing. I just uh, have a harder time coming up with topics than when I started. Um, so, yeah, I would love to hear from you. See you tomorrow. <laughs>